Welcome to the Focus on Agriculture podcast. I'm Jason Carr. And I'm Preston Schrader. Today's guest was Dr. Joshua Vonk. Dr. Vonk is actually a close friend of mine. We went to grad school at the University of Illinois at the same time. So he's a, a gentleman I've known for quite some time. Uh, his research centered around specifically soybeans and um, he evaluated uh, nutrient applications and the timing of those applications as well as population, trying to get higher yielding soybeans. So it's an interesting concept when we talk about nitrogen fertilization in soybeans. What we're really talking about is trying to improve yield. Um, and as such, we're trying to improve sustainability by producing more with the acres that are currently in production. One of the best ways that agriculture can be more sustainable is to produce more with less input. And the biggest input, the most limiting input we have when it comes to agriculture is land. If we can produce more on the acres that we have, uh, it allows us to not have to put new acres into production. So for the listeners, uh, just uh, another warning up front, we are still at the time of a recording in the midst of COVID lockdown. So as such, we conducted this interview over Zoom audio. So the audio quality is not quite where we like to have it. With that being said, please continue to follow us, uh, share us with your friends, and uh, be sure to rate and subscribe to this podcast. With that being said, let's get right to the interview. Good morning, Josh. Would you mind telling us a little bit about your background? Morning, Preston. I grew up on a farm along the Illinois River near Chillicothe, which is just north of Peoria. And I've been involved with agriculture from a very young age. We raise a lot of corn soybean and wheat, but we also graze some some other crops like sweet corn and seed corn, popcorn, and even a little bit of milo on dryland sand and sunflower. So I've been exposed to a lot of stuff from a young age, but when I went to college, I uh, started in uh, TSM and ended up finishing in ag engineering um, with the idea of working for a um, engineering firm while being on the farm, but I graduated when uh, we had the, I'll call it the Great Recession. I don't know what the official term is. And so after a year on the farm, I decided to go back to grad school and had the opportunity to go to the crop sciences department at the U of I. And I was able to work on soybean and corn in terms of a day-to-day task, but most of my research was in soybean my projects as a master's student started with looking at a study with row spacing, seeding rate, and planting date. And then um, going into my PhD, I worked on irrigation on uh, very productive soils, trying to reduce uh, any potential yield limitations. And then another, uh, compa- I, I don't know if I call it a companion study, but I was working on it simultaneously was nitrogen use of soybean looking at ways to increase yield since it had become somewhat uh, more common for producers trying to reach those high yield levels to use some at least some nitrogen but when i when i graduated then i uh had the opportunity to come back to my in-laws farm and so the last two almost two years i've been on the farm well josh you did a lot of interesting research and that's what we're going to talk about in this podcast touch on some of those things that you researched but, you know, sometimes we hear a criticism, I want to go back to something that you talked about at the very beginning of your introduction. Sometimes we hear a criticism 
of conventional farmers in the Midwest that, you know, it's a monoculture, you know, we only grow, a monoculture would, you know, really be one crop, but, you know, they're talking about corn and beans, basically, but your farm sounds like it's very diverse. Well, it it was when I was a lot younger, uh, because we had different soil types with and without irrigation, and then sometimes it's good to have the diversity from the standpoint of, like, uh, seed corn, you don't take as much responsibility for it so you have more time in the fall to shift to some of your other crops and sweet corn's an early crop where a lot of farmers around here are able to grow cover crops after it and then like your milo it's for a dry land or it did well on dry land sand so it, it it did give you some diversity and then we sold some sunflowers and it just provides an opportunity kind of spread a little bit of risk by having different different uh streams of revenue i guess interesting so we're, before we get into your specific research the university of illinois has a long history of soybean research you know ag research in general we have the marrow plots which have been in operation for well over 100 years can you talk just a little bit about the history of soybean research at the university of illinois as a whole, the research from the university has covered a lot of different areas for quite a while. There's been, uh, you know, a pathology program and entomology program and um, production and breeding. I mean, the University of Illinois um, still releases public varieties for sale. I, I don't know exactly when it would have started, but I mean, it's been in place for a long time looking at all these different aspects of soybean, both developing it and managing it after it is uh, or while it's grown. Right. Soybeans kind of got their start here in Illinois. I did a little research on that a few years ago and uh, you know there were soybeans grown in the U.S. in Revolutionary War time, you know colonial times there were some soybeans grown but it kind of fizzled out and the real genesis of the industry as we know it today started in a garden in Alton, Illinois, and spread out from there. We can trace all the genetics back to that original starting point. Yeah, I, I believe they said the, the beans came from a schooner that they were using as ballast when they came from Asia. Well, you guys were talking about the University of Illinois uh, way back when, when I remember walking around the quad. I remember this quote on one of the buildings that wealth of Illinois is in her soils and her strength lies in its intelligent development. You guys remember seeing that quote? Yeah. Walking around. Yeah, uh, right? Is that what it is? Yeah, yeah. I, it was a president of U of I, I think, that said it maybe 200 years ago or something. But uh, along those lines, I, me and Jason have interviewed a lot of people in the sustainability world. And we talk about feeding a growing population with limited uh, resources, limited land that's usable for production agriculture. A lot of your research was around specifically fertilization. So I'm curious for the consumers out there, even the farmers might be interested from a national perspective, what percentage of soybean acres in the U.S. are currently receiving fertilization? Well, from a perspective of potash from 2015 to 2018, it's ranged from 83 to 91 percent, but phosphates are around 50 percent. And then even nitrogen has reached a point where it's just under 20% of acres, which is a new development from my perspective, looking at management of soybeans. But if you look historically, they've always recorded a little bit of nitrogen fertilization 
but I think some of that comes from nitrogen being in phosphate type fertilizers and some of it being from a change in management plans where you may have been growing a crop that required some sort of nitrogen fertilization. But more recently, it has become a point of interest for people who are trying to reach high yields where soybeans may struggle, or the theory would be that since they require so much nitrogen. So Josh, you talked about historically, soybeans have received not much nitrogen fertilization, although with phosphorus and potassium, it's pretty routine to put that down. The reason why farmers historically have not put much nitrogen on soybeans is that they can actually fix nitrogen, you know, generate their own nitrogen out of the air or the soil. Can you describe that process a little bit? Sure. With the nitrogen fixation, you have bacteria in the soil, bradyrhizobium, and what it does is it infects the soybean root and nodules develop on the soybean roots. And in exchange for photosynthate from the plant or nutrients, the bacteria breaks a very strong triple bond um, in N2 and then are able to uh, circulate that nitrogen into the plant, which I emphasized the very strong triple bond. It was a very big deal when um, nitrogen fertilization became an easier option for corn, but for um, with the development of the Haber-Bosch process. But this is something that occurring naturally is very beneficial. And typically 50 to 60% of the nitrogen used by a plant comes from fixation. You referenced the Haber-Bosch process. We had a recent series with uh, Rob Syke, who's the author of the book Food 5.0, How We Feed the Future. And he referenced that process also. And, you know, in his mind, it was one of the most important technological advancements of the 20th century. I can definitely understand that argument because it, I've seen wheat and corn without nitrogen and it just, it, it, does, it doesn't look the same and it doesn't have the same yield. <laughs> yeah. So on a basic level for the consumers listening, so we've described, you know, soybeans, they naturally fix a lot of their nitrogen. Corn, we have to apply nitrogen to achieve yield. Josh, can you kind of describe at a 10,000 foot view your PhD project and some of the things you were looking at? Yeah, um, we were kind of renewing the, the look into nitrogen on soybeans because it had been looked at previously, but we were kind of took it from the approach of looking at a few different soil types with a few different timings to see if we could find a combination that might provide a more consistent response. The locations included um, a clay pan soil and a, a loam soil that was irrigated and then a, a couple of sites with very productive soils. The time look at planting and then uh, three timings during reproductive growth, potentially when you'd start to have fixation decline. So you saw some interesting responses and, and you saw different things in different years. Can you talk just a little bit about what you kind of saw across the years? You, you didn't really see a consistent response, did you? No, we didn't. In on the most productive soils, which is kind of where we were based at in Urbana and at the U of I Research Center in Monmouth, the only response to an individual application was actually a yield decrease from a planting time where you probably hurt nitrogen fixation for the rest of the season. For the, those two locations with, with multiple applications, 
we did increase yields, but it, not in an economical manner. So essentially, we replaced some of the demand of the that fixation places on a plant, and we're able to put that into yield. But it was just it was just not very large, even though we saw it multiple times. So the plant basically decided, so to speak, that um, it didn't really need to go to the work of the fixation. It already had the nitrogen it needed, and that kind of hurt you in the long run. You kind of made the plant lazy in a sense. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And and then at, we had a, on the clay pan soil, the nitrogen application, it seemed that the earlier applications also also did that there where it made the plant lazy. But we had one timing that was um, at the beginning of pod development where it was almost like it was a point where the plant was under stress and the nitrogen application was able to provide nitrogen when maybe fixation wasn't producing quite enough nitrogen. So we were able to give the, we were able to supply the nitrogen without hurting fixation. And it also it had time to use it too, because the later timing, it, the soil nitrogen was high. What were, high what were your timings, Josh? What were your timings? R1, R3, R5 one then planting so beginning of flowering the beginning of uh, pod formation the beginning of seed formation so it sounds like part of the reason for the variability in the responses was different soil conditions obviously but also different weather throughout the year do you think there's any way that you know we can ever be able to predict when a soybean plant would need nitrogen and apply it as needed and you know maybe get an economical response there not currently there's not a consistent way to predict an economical response i mean i think in terms of a yield response there's some things that you can do to get that you know maybe boost yield a little bit but the plants are really good at producing their own nitrogen and we're i don't want to say not a guessing game per se but we're trying to apply nitrogen at one maybe a couple of specific times and hope that it improves yield you know, maybe at a vulnerable time or as fixation declines, but the plant's kind of producing it as it needs it. So it's hard to know what the plant needs consistently throughout the growing season. Right. So Josh, in the one year that you saw lower SDS pressure, and then you got the higher yields with nitrogen, the nitrogen application, how would you explain that phenomenon? Well, it's a phenomenon that needs to be specifically looked at because it was it wasn't something we were testing for. It was more of an observation, but it maybe it's possible that the nitrogen available early in the season in a soil with low organic matter maybe allowed a larger, healthier plant to develop, and they were able to, you know, essentially fight off or, you know, slow the development of the SDS in the plant. I guess you could maybe put it that way, but going forward what i'd like to do is compare um, these sdsc treatments with and without nitrogen on a soil with a lot of sds pressure to see if there is something to this empirical observation i mean since we didn't test for sds specifically i can't make any uh, strong claims about <laughs> nitrogen on sds so it's kind of an anecdotal response that you saw and it's not you know you don't have any hard data to back it up sounds like an interesting research project for some future grad student 
I, w- I would agree. For the uh, non-farmers that are listening out there, uh, SDS is a is sudden death syndrome, which is a has a very high economical impact on uh, soybean production in the United States. Traditionally, Josh, there's some concerns about adding uh, a lot of fertilization to soybeans. They'll grow. The plants can sometimes grow bigger and even fall over. We refer to that as lodging. And they can be more of a challenge for harvest. Obviously, farmers don't like to try to pick up plants that are laying down on the ground. They like them standing up. So in your research, when you added nitrogen um, at the rates you were applying, did you see much difference in you know how well the plants were standing or any harvest challenges? We didn't measure it specifically, but from a, just an observational point, I didn't notice any extremely large differences. I mean, some of the plants that got nitrogen compensated with less fixation, and so there there might have been a little bit of that give and take, but it's definitely a concern because if you put a lot of nitrogen on during vegetative growth and don't follow it up during seed development, you would definitely be putting it at a risk for that. Perfect. Uh, Josh, I want to kind of switch gears now and get into the speculative world as far as like looking at the future. I here pulled up in front of me, I've got a chart showing corn yields in Illinois from 1972 to to 2017. And corn yields jumped from 100 bushel an acre in Illinois in 72 up to, I think it's 175-ish by 2017. So a significant jump. Uh, soybean yields have also increased from 1972 to 2017. So we're looking at a 30 bushel per acre in 1972 up to, you know, right at or a little under um, 50 bushel average in 2016, 2017. When you look at the future of soybean production in Illinois or in the Midwest, using your academic hat and now your farmer hat, where do you see that top end? Do you see us continue to push that? And do you think nitrogen is going to be a part of that future? Well, that's a good question, Preston. I mean, I think we'll always continue to push it to some extent. I'm, I'm not going to sit here and say, you know, this is the maximum potential yield because there's genetic improvements and there's management improvements. In fact, I, you know, I read a, my dissertation and they attributed two-thirds of yield improvement to genetic improvement and one-third to management. I think that as we go forward, we might have to consider nitrogen, but if you're breeding a plant for higher yields, you're likely breeding it so it can fix more nitrogen too. So I can't say, you can't say for sure, but if you were going to try and use nitrogen, you would probably need need to continue to look at it from the perspective of avoiding an impact on nodulation and maybe providing it later in the season as um, fixation starts to decline. But like like I've said, you know, it's been inconsistent. And so this is probably something that'll continue to be looked at as breeding changes to soybean plants. You have kind of an interesting perspective, I think. A, A lot of farmers are very well educated and a lot of them have gotten college degrees. There's probably not a whole lot of them who are PhDs that are full-time farmers. How does that translate from you coming from a world of academia and, you know, is sometimes looked at as they're not, uh, don't understand the real world to where, you know, you got a farmer with maybe 40 or 50 years experience growing crops and 
they have a whole lot of experience and and know a whole you know a whole lot of real world things that they've looked at what's your perspective on that i guess or you know the balance between the research world and the real world well the the emphasis is quite a bit different you know um in in the real world it's sometimes your comparisons get lost when you're out in the field just trying to get stuff done because with the last few years well i guess maybe i should phrase it the only three years i farmed full time was in 2009 2019 and 2020 and 9 and 19 were two of the most trying planting seasons that i know of and so it's always been a time crunch with what I've been involved. And so maybe going forward, my perspective would change a little bit, but in research and in production, you're always trying to prepare, you know, you want to be ready ahead of the season, but for farmers that are behind the eight ball on time, they're not going to necessarily take as much time to do comparisons in a field to see if they want to make changes to their operation. It's more about getting everything planted as timely as possible. But at the same time, there's things you see out in the field that you might want to compare um, going forward, different products that might be available or herbicide programs. You know, if you have neighbors that you're on good terms with and they have a different herbicide program, you might be able to get some advice from them. Or if you were looking at different equipment, you know, with different management of residue or something there are some things where you can actually see it in the field which is which is helpful sometimes sometimes when you're doing research you don't always get that uh, frontline perspective that's a great perspective josh we really appreciate you taking time out of your uh, busy farming day to chat with us about your research uh, it's been a pleasure and if any of the listeners are interested in checking out josh's research for themselves or any other grad students that have written dissertations or theses at the University of Illinois, you can check out the website ideals.illinois.edu. Thanks for listening. The views expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the program hosts or their employer.